This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 12th of March 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll begin in Ukraine to get the latest developments overnight, and then we'll hear a report from Turkey where negotiations have been taking place. I think what the Europeans have probably done is led the way in codifying mediation, in turning it into more of a self-conscious profession. But actually, there are natural mediators all over the world. Vincent McAvaney looks at the day's international papers for us and Andrew Muller reflects on the past seven days. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, the headlines. Air raid sirens were heard across most Ukrainian cities early this morning, urging people to seek shelter, local media reported. Russian forces appear to be regrouping for a possible assault on Kyiv, with satellite images showing them firing artillery as they closed in on the capital. With the Russian assault in its third week, President Vladimir Zelensky, who's rallied his people with a series of addresses, said Ukraine had already reached a strategic turning point. The United States has imposed new sanctions on senior Kremlin officials and Russian oligarchs. Washington has accused Russia of violating nuclear safety principles in Ukraine and demanded its invading forces stop firing on nuclear power plants, but added that there were no signs detected yet of any radiological release. And Deutsche Bank, which faced criticism from some investors and politicians for its ongoing ties to Russia, has announced that it will wind down its business in the country. Deutsche joins the ranks of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, which were the first major U.S. banks to exit after Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Georgina Godwin, and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's now cross over to Ukraine, where I'm joined by Lada Roslicki, who's founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group. Uh, Lada, very pleased to connect with you this morning. As we've heard, sirens have been going off. Did you spend the night in a shelter? Uh, it was not in, yeah, not the entire night, uh, just about over two hours. And um, it, this was the longest um, air raid siren that we had gone through. And I understand that there have been problems with the sirens, though, that a lot of them are now coming via an app, which not everybody can access. Right. And it's a, this is a very stupid situation, actually. So not everybody has a smartphone. And uh, the siren, there are local sirens that aren't going off. So it's it's kind of strange. And some people disregard the sirens on the phone, I noticed, because it's kind of surreal that it's on the phone. Um yeah, so it would be nice. I mean, it sounds kind of strange, but it would be nice to have real sirens going on and with the Ministry of um, Emergency Situations sending us uh, text messages or something. Because if you don't have the siren or little old ladies, they don't have uh, the proper telephones to to know that they have to go hide. So mm-hmm. that's a danger, a dangerous point. Can you bring us up to speed with what's been going on where you are over the last 24 hours or so? Oh, yeah. Um, well, 
with these uh, raids that happened at night, one of the most disturbing factors from an analytical perspective is the uh, Russians bombed a frozen food warehouse, which shows that uh, they may be preparing to purposefully allow people to starve or go hungry in Kiev, and maybe even further than, than Kiev. They also bombed um, airports again. So I find it very strange that <laughs> that these airports are are being um, not being defended properly, and we still have one more uh, very important uh, airport in Kiev that is being protected very very seriously. So for the and then of course we have the issue with the um, uh, nuclear plants that are being like with the Chernobyl nuclear plant where the electricity had been shut off with the Zaporizhia, the largest European nuclear plant, being hijacked and shot at by the Russians. And uh, the issue of now chemical and biological warfare being used. So Russia is claiming that uh, the Ukrainians, together with the Americans, are going to start using chemical and biological weapons against us here in Ukraine. But more likely, it seems that they're going to be bombarding uh, the chemical plants and some biological uh, laboratories that, that exist in Ukraine and mm. then claiming that, that it's the Ukrainians doing it. What's the atmosphere there, Lada? Uh, it's pretty terrible, actually. Like, people are calm and they still have a sense of humour. Uh, underlying exhaustion is certainly there. A frustration with the uh, refugees because the, the queues are very lo- are very long and certain um, these reception centers along the borders are filled. So that's very frustrating. Also, the, um, the there's no gas to be purchased. And I mean, uh, both like petroleum and, uh, and regular gas, uh, it's very limited and very expensive. So people who need to get around are probably like we're, we're kind of stuck and we don't see it getting better anytime soon. And what about humanitarian corridors? Are people able to leave? That's a very dangerous thing for people to be doing because the Russians are opening fire on the corridors. So one initiative that had been taken uh, was to suggest, okay, if the West or, or, or the entire world, it's not even a Western question, is too afraid to give uh, no-fly zones over the entire country, then they could at least establish no-fly zones over the humanitarian corridors or over the nuclear stations and the chemical plants. To date, uh, that hasn't been done. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, I mean, in Israel, uh, there there was a no-fly zone put over one of their super supermodels' wedding. So uh, this is, you know, to, to give you a little bit of contrast. Mm. Mm. Uh, and Vladimir Zelensky, he's been addressing the country every, every day. What's the latest from him? Uh, honestly, I, I'm not really paying very much attention to what he's saying. His ratings, however, I'm, I am following. They're up at, uh, at at around the 90% rate, which is great for uh, for Ukraine to, to feel that it has this leadership. Mm-hmm. Lada, thank you so much for, for joining us and, and do stay safe. Yeah, thank you very much for covering this. That's Lada Roslicki there who is talking to us from Ukraine. Uh, let's turn now to Vincent McAvinney, who is a journalist and a regular Monocle 24 voice. He's here in the studio with us. I mean, Vincent, what she's saying is, is borne out in the newspapers. We're seeing, I mean, it's wall-to-wall coverage. Completely. The 
first, uh, you know, 10 pages in most of the newspapers, not just the British ones, but global newspapers that I've looked at this morning, are just dominated by this coverage. There are so many aspects and angles to go out, of course, as we've just been hearing there, the dire situation for the people on the ground, the you know, looking wider across the country, the tactics operated by the Russian military, uh, but also the global newspapers as well, looking at how effective are the sanctions being. In particular, one story jumped out at me this morning, the New York Times, it's a cover story which goes on to huge detail on the second page uh, about the UAE and how that is providing a refuge for Russians who are fleeing. This is the sort of oligarch class who are being shut out of the West uh, and who are, you know, having their bank accounts inspected in places you'd never expect them to, like in Switzerland and the Grand Cayman Islands, other um, offshore jurisdictions as they try to find where their money is. Uh, But they are finding an easy place uh, in Dubai to park their mega yachts, uh, to live the party lifestyle that they've grown accustomed to, all whilst ignoring uh, what is going on at home and what is going on in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, And of course, just looking at that region of the world and Saudi Arabia in particular with their vast oil reserves, what MBS, uh, the the leader there, has now is this huge leverage over the West. Massive leverage. That's something that this piece picks up on about the kind of very mutual response from uh, countries in the Middle East uh, to this. So Dubai, for instance, is on the Security Council, has a rotating seat at the moment, but it didn't back uh, America's resolution uh, about the invasion. It abstained from it. And we've also seen the Saudis being very mooted and trying to play both sides when it comes uh, to this conflict. And it is very interesting. So you know, I'm someone that does business corresponding over the last couple of years, and I've also started to, in the last year, really have to track the oil price. And if you look at what's happened, the deal that OPEC cut to ramp up production by, uh, you know, small increments each month, uh, saying that, oh, you know, we've got to bring capacity back slowly and there are issues. Well, no, it could have been turned on last summer when we started to come out of the pandemic and got back to normal. But what, you know, Russia in particular, when you look at OPEC Plus, and I think the core OPEC with Saudi Arabia leading it, they have been per- purposefully dragging their feet on taking pumping levels back up, which has artificially inflated the price. So the day um, before the invasion, you were already seeing Brent crude up at about $96 per barrel. That's way higher than it should have been. It should have, you know, and it had gone from 70 at Christmas time all the way up there. Then this week, earlier on, it hits $139 per barrel. It is so high with JP Morgan saying it could go up to 185 And this is a tactic, one, I think, from President Putin over the last year, because he's obviously been planning this invasion for a long time, to create this energy crisis alongside what he's doing in Ukraine, because he knows it'll be a way of punishing people in the West. But also Saudi Arabia, we know that since MBS, uh, since Biden has come in, he's not met face to face with MBS. And that was on a point of principle. One, it's believed because of MBS's actions and alignment over Trump with Trump and the Trump family and the money that they seem to have been getting out of Saudi Arabia since, allegedly, and also the Jamal Khashoggi murder. And I think Biden had been sort of you know, very much playing tough with MBS to try and rein him in, uh, to try, you know, this isn't the usual rule that um, the ruler of of Saudi Arabia that America has been used to dealing with, someone who's sort of a bit more grown up, a bit more US aligned, realises that they need them for their security. MBS seems a little bit more erratic, and obviously his actions with Jamal Khashoggi were pretty deplorable. Um, so now that, you know, the oil price has got so high, elections coming later this year for Joe Biden, he really is desperate to get this price back down. And so we might see, perhaps it's being mooted a trip 
from Biden to Saudi Arabia, but I think the conditions are going to be you need to step in, you need to condemn the Russian action, you need to decide which of us you're going to go with here, because this is now a split, uh, historical split in the world. You're going to have to align yourself either with us or with the Russians. And if you align yourself with the Russians, we will pull security support. You know, let's not forget in the recent history, 18, the last 18 months, they have suffered drone attacks in Saudi Arabia from pretty rudimentary drones from Iran couldn't defend their own oil fields despite having these multi-billion dollar weapon systems given to them or sold to them by the United States. Their own people couldn't operate them despite giving the training. And America has had to surge troops to Saudi Arabia to help protect it. So I think it'll be a pretty blunt talk from Joe Biden. If he is going to go to Saudi Arabia to try and bring down the oil price, he'll be saying to them, you need to get on board with this now because there's no place for you playing both sides with Russia. Mm. Well, of course, somebody who is playing both sides is Turkey and they are trying to broker some kind of uh, uh, deal between Russia and Ukraine. And in fact, talks have been ongoing uh, there. Uh, So uh, Turkey's foreign minister hosted his counterparts from Russia and Ukraine on Thursday, marking their first encounter since the conflict began. And the meeting was on the sidelines of the Antalya Diplomacy Forum, a, a, a gathering of ministers and experts from countries around the world. Now, Monocle's Chris Chermak is there for us. He's been speaking with Michael Keating, who's executive director of the European Institute of Peace, about why Turkey is putting itself forward as a new conflict mediator. <laughs> First of all, Michael, I was just curious, as you just as you just were talking about uh, there, but just tell me about this forum, what you've experienced so far, what your impressions are of this of this gathering. Well, it's interesting that the Turks are investing so much in the creation of a forum for mediators. They. Uh, are co-chairs, as you probably know, of the Friends of Mediation Group, which was set up, I think, about 10 years ago at the UN. Uh, And it's a recognition of the value of mediation as an instrument in the foreign policy toolbox. Uh, So very significant that that they're doing this. Um, There are not many countries, to my knowledge, outside Europe that do this. I mean, Turkey is sort of one foot in Europe, of course. Um, But as the foreign minister himself said, mediation is pretty important to them because they're in a a fairly extraordinary part of the world, uh, as we see particularly right now with uh, Ukraine and Eastern Europe on, on one side, the Middle East, particularly Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, very close to them, strong ties to Afghanistan, Central Asia, as well as uh, a strong political and complicated political relationship with Europe and and and, and North Africa. So, yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not surprised, but I still commend them for for doing it. It is interesting, as you you framed it that way, that typically mediation is almost a European thing. It's something that mostly European countries have done. How? How important is it that mediation moves beyond Europe that comes to a country like Turkey? I, I think it's incredibly important, and it's not just Turkey. Actually, uh, I think what the Europeans have probably done is led the way in codifying mediation, in turning it into more of a self-conscious profession. 
but actually there are media, natural mediators all over the world. Um, I used to work in Somalia for several years and you know, uh, many of the relationships are essentially through clans and sub-clans. They're great mediators, fabulous mediators. In fact, they resolve most of their problems through mediation. Uh, and so there's a huge amount you can learn from, from people who have not necessarily been trained in mediation, but for whom mediation is almost a part of their DNA, but they've never described it as mediation. I think what the Europeans have done, particularly countries like Norway, Switzerland, uh, Sweden, and a couple of others, is made it much more of a, uh, a, a deliberate skill. Uh, as I say, they've codified it. Uh, they're very supportive of organizations like the UN, uh, and the EU and other big regional bodies uh, in terms of them also upgrading their understanding of mediation and using mediation skills more deliberately. But in terms of lessons as to what works in mediation, this is not a European monopoly. Disputes that risk turning violent or in terms of resolving conflicts that have become armed conflicts or things like that. So it's not as if, you know, mediation starts at the top and then you s trickle it down. I think it should be precisely the, the other way around. I mean, your point about uh, intergovernmental organizations and in, in a way the sort of 20th century architecture uh, for conflict resolution being in bad shape, uh, that is unquestionably the case. I mean, you know, the, 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 even prior to the Ukraine uh, conflict, uh, relations within the Security Council were terrible. You've had over the last uh, 10 years a resurgence of regional actors and of states that feel uh, that they have their own agenda. The days in which you could just get the big powers to kind of agree things and then make sure everybody else behaved are long gone, they're far away in the rear view mirror. And that is a big problem for organizations like the EU and the UN and OSCE and even the African Union, because even though they embody typically the values that are enshrined, nearly all of them in the UN Charter and orientate themselves around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, they have great difficulty in persuading uh, parties to conflict, that they uh, are part of the solution uh, to resolving those conflicts, you know, so it's, it's becoming increasingly tough. I don't think that they are claiming that they have uh, a unique uh, role to play in the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict. Uh, they do say that in other situations. For example, in Afghanistan, I think Turkey really has very, very strong credentials uh, to play not only a facilitation role, but even to support mediation. And by the way, there's a big issue around what mediation covers and, and, and doesn't cover. What you saw was the foreign minister of Turkey basically providing a space for you know, the Ukrainian foreign minister and the Russian foreign minister to meet. But it wasn't mediation. I mean, that was that was providing a space. Uh, maybe it could be the thin end of a 
a, a longer term effort to provide some form of facilitation. But I don't think, uh, I have not heard that they are aspiring to mediate that conflict. And actually, that, that there's a big issue about, you know, mediating that conflict. It's not at all obvious whether that is possible at all, let alone who could do it. Uh, the Turks are uh, obviously quite vulnerable, being geographically where they are. Ukraine is just on the other side of the, uh, the Black Sea. And I think they have to play their cards very, very carefully uh, in this situation. They have a very strong relationship with the Russians. Uh, they're engaged with the Russians in a number of places, you know, starting with next door in Syria, about, you know, there are Turk strong Turkish and Russian uh, areas of influence where they meet each other in the South Caucasus, in Central Asia, Afghanistan, in the Horn of Africa, and so on and so on. So I think they're probably, uh, you know, want to be as useful as possible. But I do not get the impression that they are pushing themselves forward as the go-to people in terms of trying to resolve this conflict. We're not at that stage. Michael Keating there, Executive Director of the European Institute of Peace, in discussion with Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak. Well, still with me in the studio is Vincent Macavini, and we're looking through the papers. Vincent, what we know, of course, is that this has sparked a huge refugee crisis, and one of the places that's really feeling it is Moldova. Yeah, that's right. Moldova, you know, it's a very small uh, country. It's pretty poor. It uh, isn't in the European Union, but it has recently sent in a very quick application because it's concerned about what's happening in its neighbour Ukraine. It's only two million people there, but they've already taken in a few th- a hundred thousand uh, so or so. Uh, people and now one in eight children in the country are Ukrainian refugees and it would be the equivalent the numbers that they've taken in are the equivalent of the UK uh, taking in over two million refugees when we all know we've taken in at the moment probably less than a thousand uh, so it's having a huge impact on the country they're saying they're running out of buildings simply to put people up in uh, and that they need international support to keep services going but they too are pretty worried about Russia rolling over their border in tanks because you have a region called Transnistria, uh, which since 1992 is a sort of Moscow-backed Russian separatist. It's a sort of thin 250-mile sliver of land, and and the Russians do actually hold some troops there to protect a a USSR munitions station. Um, And so this is a country which is now not in NATO, not in the EU, but as I said, has rapidly tried to uh, get extension to the EU. But they are very worried because whilst it's very clear that if Russian tanks rolled into Estonia or Lithuania, NATO member states, that they would be absolutely, you know, there was no way that NATO could avoid a head-on conflict. They would be targeted and they would be taken out by overwhelming force. For a country like Moldova, it is very nervous uh, that they are going to be pulled into Putin's new Russia sphere, his USSR 2.0. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, we were just talking about Dubai earlier and how people are sort of hiding their, their, their wealth there. A lot of wealth still being hidden in Britain, though. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, and there's a problem in Britain with the way that these sanctions are going. So you've got now um, a few dozen oligarchs being sanctioned, most famously, of course, Roman Abramovich, and it's had a real impact on the football club he's trying to sell, Chelsea. Uh, but it was always with him known that he was the owner of Chelsea. He would you know, be at the stand. He's been a public figure in Britain for the last 20 years. Uh, but what isn't clearer about these asset freezes is what property is owned. And it gives an example here uh, of a property uh, which is allegedly owned by Alicia Usmanov, who is a, another oligarch hit by sanctions. He's got financial ties to Everton and Arsenal football clubs, but he was never the outright owner. But in the company reporting, they had to reveal that he had these hands in the club. Uh, but what is trickier in the UK is that Company's house, uh, where you go to register a company, isn't taking, uh, you don't need to do proof of identity. Uh, and so you have all these shell companies being set up and it's not clear who actually owns things properly uh, and they've been used along with offshore companies to buy property in Britain. And in Britain, the quirk is that you don't know, and it gives an example of a, of a house here, a very lovely leafy country house. It's called Sutton Place. It's got amazing grounds. It's pretty old. It goes back to the court of Henry VIII. It's grade one listed in leafy Surrey. Uh, and it's well suspected that uh, Alicia Usmanov owns this property, uh, but it is hold, held through a myriad of Cypriot companies, uh, and so it is not clear if he actually owns it or not. Now, what British authorities, who have been accused for years, including by the United States, of, uh, of allowing Russian money to be laundered, of allowing assets and properties to be bought up... What Britain needs to do if it's going to get through this, because it, you know, this story goes through this complex web of all these different companies and you're unsure at the end of it, does he really own it or not? Well, these oligarchs have mobile phones. You can track the cell phone data. If they're spending significant time in a property which you suspect they own through all these shell companies then you can probably assume that that's theirs and mm. you can use that kind of data. I think the British government is going to have to get pretty smart about how it tracks this stuff down because the system that they've presided over has allowed these fragrant uh, breaches of you know sanctions now, uh, but also of you know dirty money from Russia being washed here, uh, and so they've got to come up with some creative solutions to track it down. Uh, and there are some amazing people doing stuff online. I mean, for instance, Russian yachts being tracked, Russian yep. jets being tracked, uh, and all you have to do is put in hashtag Rich Russian Kids on Instagram. And you can see, and I've been watching this last two weeks, their captions, they're mocking the sanctions. They're mocking, you know, anyone that still has their money in rubles. They're living lives in Dubai, some still in London. And they're very publicly still flaunting this wealth, these luxury cars, getting onto private jets. But, you know, there's we're going to have an issue as well with the private jets, which I think is interesting, is we know that Aeroflot and, and other Russian airlines, so they lease about five, uh, more than 500 planes. They don't actually own them outright. Now, the leasers have until the end of this month to get those planes back. The Russians have just put in a new law saying to not return those planes. So they're effectively going to steal billions of dollars of planes. But those planes will not have servicing. They'll not be able to get parts for them. They're going to have to cannibalise some to keep the others going. They can't fly many places. But they've got to do similar practices with these private jets. 
They've got to go to the private jets companies and say, you need to stop servicing ones that are owned by Russians or constantly flying in and out of Russians if you can't track who they are owned by. You need to stop giving them parts. You need to, if they land at any airports, they should be, you know, stopped from refueling. You've got to ground these people as well. Mm. Otherwise, there's going to be no internal pressure on Putin to stop what he's doing. Slightly related story. I don't know if you saw that Donald Trump has asked his supporters to buy him a a private jet. (laughs) The grift is just, it's not even subtle anymore. It's just incredible that, you know, cost of living crisis around the world and he's asking people for that kind of money because, yeah, his uh, dump of a plane is no longer able to fly. Quite extraordinary. Uh, Let's cross to Andrew Muller with what we've learnt this week. We learned this week that among the first rank of profiteers from the war in Ukraine may be cartographers and calligraphers, as maps and street signs around the world are mischievously recalibrated in and as gestures of solidarity. We're playing the swell maps, do you see? As this is a bit about maps, and we think these developments are swell. Ooh, you clever man. You're so clever. Clever, Clark. Very smart. We learned that Russia's embassy in Vilnius, beautiful capital of Lithuania, now sits at two Ukraine's heroes, which is going to look awkward on the Russian ambassador's new business cards. We learned that post to Russia's embassy in Tirana, splendid capital of Albania, must henceforth be directed to Free Ukraine Street, and we learned of similar pranks being perpetrated or proposed in Prague, Riga and London. We learned, however, that it could be worse. Russia's embassy in Dublin faced an attack which was a rare combination of literal and metaphorical when an enraged local citizen reversed a truck full of religious artefacts through the front gates, giving new meaning to the phrase, holy roller, am I right? We learned that the alleged assailant, one Desmond Wisley, proprietor of Wisley Ecclesiastical Supplies, who will do you a Celtic cross sanitizer station for just 123 euros when not making this up, was breezily unbothered by being seen to conform to any stereotype of his people, informing arresting officers, I've done my bit, lads. We then learned that Russia's embassy in Dublin was not only down a front gate, but lacking a sense of proportion. It tweeted as follows, as will now be intoned by Monocle's Pots and Kettles desk chief, Paige Reynolds. We believe that no people of sound mind could support such senseless and barbaric actions. Senseless and barbaric actions, is it? And we're going to need that clip of awkward coughing, chairs being skittishly scraped, etc. <coughs> Maestro, silly French music. We learned elsewhere that the global stampede to make statements of solidarity with Ukraine and condemnation of Russia, though doubtless coming from a good place, etc., may be getting, perhaps arguably maybe somewhat carried away. We learned that Paris restaurant La Maison de la Poutine, four stars on TripAdvisor we checked, had felt, after receiving abusive and even threatening messages, obliged to issue a statement clarifying that the establishment was named in honour of its signature dish, Poutine, not the Russian president, Putin. 
Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. Fair enough, but let's mm, move yeah. on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah, I guess. Okay. We learned that a similar eatery in Quebec, Leroy Giuseppe, had sought to forestall such contumely by changing the name of poutine on its menus to La Frite Fromage Sauce. Really, though, there is no excuse for confusing Putin and Poutine, as one is a doer, stodgy, frumpy concoction of profoundly unwholesome ingredients which no decent person should ever have wanted anything to do with, and the other is actually no, we cannot bring ourselves to go through with this cheap bait-and-switch device. They're both just terrible. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. Elsewhere, we learned that the backlash could at least get amusingly personal. Here in the UK, the Loaf and Cheese, a pub in Burton-upon-Trent, believed to be a settlement in the vicinity of Staffordshire, has taken a stand and or scared up an amount of free publicity by declaring that Vladimir Putin is henceforth barred from their premises. The landlady further declaring that if the Russian president did attempt for example, to join the audience for this Sunday's afternoon show by Mark Bolton, much acclaimed locally for his impressions of, among others, Elton John, Frankie Valli, Peter Andre and Tom Jones, and now the musical backing makes sense, her customers would, quote, wreck him. Tickets still seem to be available. We also learned that one Polish mayor has a long memory. Wojciech Bakun, mayor of Chemyshul, which abuts the border with Ukraine, found himself descended upon by former Italian deputy prime minister, leader of the Lega party and massive jackass Matteo Salvini. The joint press conference went suboptimally for Salvini. Zrobiła we tym ludziom, którzy tutaj w ilości 50 tysięcy dziennie przekracza granicę. Prosiłbym, żebyśmy wspólnie pojechali, wspólnie pojechali. Właśnie pojedziemy zaraz do ośrodka dla uchodźców i pojedziemy na granicę, jeżeli będzie pan w tej koszulce. Zapraszam, panie, panie senatorze. No respect for you. Thank you. What you are hearing there is Mayor Bakun offering to take Salvini to visit Ukrainian refugees so long as Salvini wears the same Vladimir Putin T-shirt he triumphantly sported when visiting Moscow in 2014. So we continue to learn that if there is to be one minor consolation to this disaster, it might hopefully be the abashed scuttling of every grifter who has groveled in Moscow's direction these last few years. Speaking of which, however, we learned, disappointingly, that one cohort of those in cahoots with Putin will actually benefit from Russia's ostracizing. For we learned that among those who appear to have only just noticed that Vladimir Putin has been presiding over some sort of predatory gangster state is the bad singer Sting, who has sonorously announced that he will never again trouser a bung for performing private shows for wealthy and presumably deaf Russian oligarchs. Now of all times, why should they escape punishment? Where's the gong? I've wanted to do this for years. From Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
Thank you very much to Andrew. Now, still with me in the studio is Vincent McAvaney, a regular voice here on Monocle 24 and accomplished journalist. Um, Vinny, we, we just mentioned Donald Trump before we went to that story. Uh, and of course, he is based in Florida and mm-hmm. known for his pretty anti-gay views, uh, as is the whole state. I, I will actually, I'll give him one thing. He's not, he's never publicly been homophobic. It's the one thing that he his wasn't His followers mostly of. His, are, though. Yeah, his followers are, and I don't think he... Well, and I I think he's, he's obviously not got a good record on trans stuff, but he weirdly had never uttered anything homophobic. But yeah, there is a problem in Florida, uh, which we're getting to now, and it has caused a big problem for the House of Mouse, which of course is uh, Florida's biggest employer, the Walt Disney Company. Uh, everyone knows Walt Disneyland. It employs tens of thousands of people in the state. They have lots of corporate headquarters there. It brings in huge, huge billions of dollars of tourism to the state of Florida, but they have allowed something to happen. So Florida has brought in a pretty horrible law, which has been dubbed the don't say gay law. It's very similar to Section 28 here in the UK, brought in under Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party, removed by the Labour Party uh, in the late 90s. And it effectively bans saying the word uh, gay in school or identifying anyone in history as having been gay, any authors as being gay, not reading uh, any books which include LGBT characters, uh, not uh, being able to say that you are yourself gay or non-binary or trans. Uh, not being able to even say that you have gay parents whilst at school. It is a pretty ridiculous law and it is potentially going to be copied in more southern states. Uh, But one company in particular has become uh, in the firing line for its stance and that is Disney because Disney like many corporations in the United States, funds politicians on both sides of the aisle, which is a basically a kind of uh, a sort of essentially you can call it a subscription just to make sure you can get your business done and seems in America. Uh, but they've funded some of the people that have put through this law, which has been passed in the lower and upper house of Florida and is waiting for sign-off by Rhonda Santos, who is uh, basically a, 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 a what I would call a smart Trump. He's someone that's got an Ivy League school background who wants to very clearly be president of the United States. He is a front-runner if Donald Trump doesn't run, uh, and he is the governor of the state, and is waiting for his signature. But Disney has been heavily criticised, both externally uh, with calls for a boycott, and now internally there has been a massive backlash over the lack of action on this bill to the point where the CEO, uh, Bob Chapek, who's not been in the job that long but has already made some pretty disastrous moves internally, um, has basically had to apologise for the company's position. He's had to take call with the governor to try and get him to stop it. Uh, And you've also had accusations coming out internally from Disney that the company has been self-censoring and that in recent movies, so for instance Onwards, which I don't know if you saw, it's a fantastic Pixar movie about... About, uh, grief and loss of a parent uh, but it did have uh, a uh, lesbian police officer uh, but it was very very subtle uh, and it, but they made a bit the company made a big Pixar wanted to make a big deal of it and it was kind of pushed out in the press lines but apparently lots of scenes had been deleted or scaled back with her so the company is facing this big revolt inside uh, and also possibly if this law gets through there will be huge pressure on it and possibly boycotts of Walt Disney World until they fund measures to get rid of it and they actually tried to sort this out by giving a $5 million uh, donation from Disney to the human rights uh, to a human rights campaign uh, in the United States uh, and they have uh, turned the money down. 
saying that uh, it's not enough, it's lip service and they should be doing more and they have the means to do more. Extraordinary. Uh, Sort of tying all that together, sort of gay films and war. Uh, I took a break from the war yesterday and watched Single All the Way and I just cannot recommend it highly enough for a a nicely made rom-com which just switch off completely. It's very sweet, isn't it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) I mean, it is a Christmas movie, so it's the wrong time of year, but I think it's good. And also it has Jennifer Cooley who, of course, is having a bit of a renaissance at the moment. She was brilliant uh, in uh, the, the the White Lotus, uh, and she's good fun in this as well. Yeah, and lots of lots of very very pretty boys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last story is something I think quite hopeful. It is actually from Canada. This story. It is. It's yeah. from uh, the uh, Toronto Star. And, you know, as a journalist, you have to be an observer uh, and you have to watch things and sometimes pretty horrible things and not get involved. That is not your job. That is the line that you do not cross. Uh, But this is a story about uh, a a decorated uh, photographer. He's worked for 25 years in conflict zones for the LA Times. His name is Sergei Lokoy. uh, And he has finally had enough. And he says, I took a side. Uh, And he has picked up Uh, put down his camera and uh, picked up a Kalashnikov uh, and despite being a Muscovite is fighting for the Ukrainians Uh, and this is a really nice story. He says this war is a black and white war. It's the war between good and evil and it's very easy to take sides. Uh, He's 69 years old and he is now fighting alongside the Ukrainians. There is so much astonishing bravery out there, isn't there? Yeah. It really is. I mean, to go, you know, someone like him who will have seen all kinds of uh, of wars and, you know, it does get forgotten, the photographers, the cameramen, the producers that go to these scenes as well and what they have to put up with. But to, to have decided enough's enough and that this is a conflict that you cannot uh, sit idly by and is probably a feeling that many of us are feeling as well. Vincent, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.